I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 as we continue in our Christmas series of messages. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, talk to you about something. We are going to be preaching a series uh, in the book of Acts, on the book of Acts, starting at the end of January in the new year. And I know that a number of you have read through the book of Acts or, or actually copied your way through the book of Acts. You went from the Gospel of John and then went right into the book of Acts, as a number of us did. But if you have not done that um, and are not inclined to do that, I have another idea for you. And this is called a scripture journal. It's on the book of Acts. Basically, what it is, is the book of Acts. There's the text. There's a place for notes. Now, here's the benefit of something like this. Sometimes we can be squeamish about, you know, circling and highlighting and writing too much stuff in our Bible because I think, I don't know that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take all the space up or maybe I don't even feel right about doing that much in my Bible. This is a journal. This has the scripture and the encouragement to you is to do it. One simple study Every time you're reading through a chapter of Acts, circle the number of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. You'll be shocked how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts, especially in contrast to how rarely he's highlighted in the Gospels. But it also is a place to start writing notes. So we're just encouraging you to take this journal, and I'm going to tell you how to get it in a minute. Take this journal and prepare for our series in the book of Acts, just maybe the next few months, you're going to use the book of Acts as a place to have your devotions. If you want to bring it on Sundays, this could be, you know, you could write your notes from the sermons if you want to do that as well in here. But most of all, this is a personal journal for you to use in reading through and reflecting on the book of Acts. We have on our website, under the events section on our website, if you scroll down, you'll see something called Acts Scripture Journal. You can purchase one. Um, it costs $5. If you do that, when you come the following Sunday, we'll have a record of all the people that have purchased it. You can pick one of these up. We will have them starting next Sunday at the hub, uh, in the, that's the main info hub in the lobby. You can pick yours up. Um, and if you want, you can, you can buy one right at the hub, but we'd prefer you do it, um, online just because then we know how many to get ahead of time. Okay, so we'll have them there. Hope you'll use them, consider it, and uh, really be a part of the study in the book of Acts uh, as we begin that in a few weeks. In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read the text in a moment, but if you have ever, if you're a history buff at all, if you're especially a Civil War history buff, um, or maybe you just were forced to go there as a kid, You've been to the, the Battle of Gettysburg over in Pennsylvania. One of the things that they have at the Battle of Gettysburg, on, on the Gettysburg site, and, and you can go through the whole site, it's 6,000 acres, so there's plenty to see. But if you've ever done that and you've sort of driven around, even if you've taken the, the thing in the car, you know, you can get a, a, a video in the car, or not a video, but you can get a, a, it's a CD, you can listen to it, and it'll direct you to the various sites. But still, you, it's, it's really hard to not get lost in the trees because you don't see the whole forest of the battlefield. But they have a panorama 
building where you can observe a 376 visual of the entire battlefield. And they'll actually light it up for you. They'll take you through it. You can see the whole three days happenings. It gives you the panorama picture of the entire battlefield over the three days. Uh, and you can see the fish hook, which if, if you're a Civil War person, you know what that's about. That's how the, the, the battle lines were drawn. And it's fascinating. And basically, it's giving you the panorama view. We started last Sunday, Pastor Mike started a series for us on the classic sermons of the Christmas story. This morning, we're coming to the second individual that is addressed in the Christmas story. Last week, it was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Today, it is Joseph, his, his father, his adopted father. As we look at this passage, we are going to see the panorama of the, the Christmas story. Actually, he's going to start in the first 17 verses 2,000 years back. And he's really presenting the lineage of the individual that is going to be addressed here, Jesus, the father of, of Joseph. J J Joseph, the father of Jesus. You knew that. And he's going to be presenting this, this panoramic view. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it similarly to the way Mike did last week, because I thought Mike did a really effective job in drawing together two things that were going on. One was the miraculous, the promise of the miraculous conception that was going to take place in Mary. And at the same time, just prior to that, the promise of a miraculous conception that was going to take place in a relative of hers. It was actually addressed to the husband, Zachariah, but it was about his wife, Elizabeth. And in these two passages, there is the picture of Gabriel, the angel that is going to, first of all, had three months, six months earlier, had presented himself to Zechariah and said, your wife, who is, she was a senior at this time, well past childbearing age, she was going to be pregnant. She was going to have a son who would turn out to be John the Baptist. Mary finds out from Gabriel, the same thing is happening to her. In her case, it's not, she's an aged woman, well past childbearing age. She's a virgin and has never had relations with a man. And so he brought these two passages together, and in a similar way, I'm going to try to bring together Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, and verses 18 to 25 to give this panoramic view of what's going on as the angel is speaking to Joseph, because the genealogy is very important. I'd like to read, and I'm not going to read all the verses just for time. I'm going to read verse 1 and 17 of the genealogy, and then we're going to look down at verse 18 to 25. We read this in verse 1, Matthew chapter 1, and I should have said this is page 757 if you're using a Bible there in front of you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you jump down to verse 17, here's the summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now we continue. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this, this room, some of us joining in online this morning. And God, it is our desire in the midst of the holidays to really put the holy back in. That our focus really be on the event of Jesus Christ coming to this world. And Lord, as we look at this passage and reflect on the, the millennia of time that was part of this process of your bringing him to earth. Lord, may you teach us, may you compel us to want to know this Christ, want to worship this Christ, want to do life more fully with this Christ, who you have offered to us as the one who brought to us yourself. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. There's going to be two things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, I'm going to give an overview of what I think is the first part of this panoramic view of the, of the Jesus story, the Christmas story, the lineage of Jesus, which is what he is presenting here in chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. And then we're going to actually look at the birth. And it's interesting how Matthew introduces this. In verse 1, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then he begins verse 18 with this statement. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then the birth of Jesus Christ. These are the two focuses we want to have this morning. First of all, we focus on Christ's lineage, his genealogy. For us, genealogies are, are not really that significant. The only time you're really interested in, you, in learning about your genealogy is maybe a member of your family gets this, this, this passionate curiosity to know about your background, or the other time is when there's a contested inheritance. But other than that, we don't tend to spend a lot of time reflecting on genealogies. And so, to start off his entire book, as a matter of fact, to start off the entire New Testament with 17 verses on genealogy just to us seems absurd. It's incomprehensible because a book is supposed to start to grab your attention, right? I mean, the first few pages, a person decides whether I'm interested or uninterested with this book or disinterested. Well, genealogy is how he starts off. But for the ancient Jews, genealogy was actually more of a resume. If you wanted to buy land in Israel, 
If you wanted to sell land in Israel, you had to bring the documents that proved your genealogy because you were not allowed to sell land outside of your tribal inheritance, of which there were 12 tribes. You were not allowed to buy land outside of your tribal inheritance. If you wanted to participate in the worship experience in some way in Israel, you had to bring your genealogy to demonstrate your fitness to be a singer in the choirs. You had to be a part of the Levitical background. You had to be, if you wanted, certainly if you wanted to be a priest or if you wanted to support in the role of the priesthood. There are all kinds of ways that the genealogies were necessary in both the civil and religious life of the, the, of the Jews. This provided for them a degree of resume that qualified them for the role or the, or the action they sought to do. Matthew is citing Jesus' gene- genealogy at the outset of his book to show that Jesus has the credentials for the role that he is coming to perform. Two particular ways that's highlighted in the genealogy. First of all, his lineage showed he is the promised one. In verse 1, it highlights what it's all about. It's tracing him back to Abraham and then jumping many centuries forward to David and proving, and again, this is all a line. Uh, It's not everybody that went from Abraham all the way down through the same parentage and actually had David in their family tree and then a particular part of David's family tree that came all the way down to Joseph, the, the father of Jesus. And all of it is trying to demonstrate that Jesus has the creds to actually be viewed as the promised son of David. If there was a king in Israel at this day that sat on the throne of Jerusalem, the appropriate individual is the one that is the culmination of this genealogy. Look at it this way. Some of you watched X-Men, and you know the story. Uh, Perfexor X, Xavier, is, uh, he has this thing that is called Cerebro. And Cerebro is this, this, this device that he uses to identify all the mutants. Mutants are, he is a mutant. There are others that are just, they have these special powers, special abilities. They're different from typical people. And he's able to use Cerebro. And all of a sudden, this Cerebro thing shows up on this like giant screen. And it identifies all, it highlights all of these people in all places on earth. And they, they're brought up and you can see them and you see their picture. All of them are identified. If Cerebro was used in the first century AD and said, who is it that actually is qualified today to be the king of Israel sitting on the throne of David? And the churches all over the earth, they would have come down to this individual named Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, living at that time as a, as a child in the town of either Bethlehem or later Nazareth. He is the one. He is the promised one. He has all of the credentials in his lineage to sit as the throne, on the throne, as the king of Israel, the son of David. 
But his lineage also shows that he is the mercy-giving one. In this God-ordained line and lineage of Jesus Christ, which God intentionally chose and protected, promised, and then brought to pass, we see some remarkable things. Well, we're told that there were 14 generations, uh, and then there was another 14 generations, but actually there were a lot more than that. Actually, in the 2200, somewhere, 21, 2200 years from Abraham to the birth of Jesus Christ, there were a lot more than that number of generations. In, if you st- study the, the individuals that are listed in Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, you can come up with about 800 years uh, of generations. But it was 2100, 2200 years. In other words, the individuals that identified here are identified by specific selection. God is highlighting them in Matthew 1. He's saying, here's the family tree. It traces all the way down. We're leaving some gaps in there because, but you can, you know, you skip from these generations, but you get to here and you know how you had to get there to get to here. But ultimately, we're not highlighting every individual. We are highlighting certain select peoples. Now, if it were you or me, on a resume, what we would tend to do is we'd highlight the good stuff, right? I mean, we'd highlight, well, my first job, I got fired. I'm going to give myself a mulligan on that one, and I'm not going to include that baby in there because we don't have to. But in God's resume, in God's credentialed lineage of Christ, he does what we would say is the opposite. He actually does something unique in two ways. One, he includes in this lineage something the, the average Jew would not do and did not do. He includes some of the women, uh, and the moms, rather than the fathers. Typically, they did the fathers. But the moms he highlights are done intentionally. Now, we could look at some of the guys that are in this list, and I could come up with illustrations like I'm going to do with the women, but I'm highlighting the women just because these were so unique to be included in the lineage that obviously God included them to say something specific to us. Okay, we got that? So here, here's, here's some of the gals. We look at this passage, and we find uh, there is this individual that is known as Tamar. And Tamar, um, in verse 3, it, she's, she's there identified with her father-in-law, Judah. And the striking thing about Tamar's story, here's her story. Tamar was married to Judah's son. Um, he died. She asked for a replacement son, which was the appropriate role in, in Israel for them to do. And uh, she was frustrated that, that this wasn't happening because usually the brother would keep the line going through his brother's wife. Wouldn't do that. She got a little bit frustrated with this her, Judas ignoring her. And so one day she dressed up as a prostitute by the side of the road. Judah came along took her, didn't recognize her, slept with her, and she had a son. And that son is part of the line uh, that is presented here. There's another gal that's mentioned in verse 5. Her name's Rahab. You may remember her. We all know her by her, her nickname in the scriptures. Rahab 
the harlot. She was in Jericho, part of the red light district of Jericho. The, she is the one that who is most commendable, the greatest thing we know that she ever did in her life. Her most exemplary deed was she lied. And she hid the Jews, the spies. She became a follower of, of Jehovah. But her background is not the kind that you would expect that would be highlighted to qualify one to be the, you would expect heroes of the faith or heroines of the faith. Her greatest deed was a lie. There's a woman named Ruth, well, a more godly woman and, and certainly known as a lovely, but she was a Moabitess. A Moabitess, Moabites were the people that were constantly a burr in the saddle to the Israelites. She was an outsider in every sense, yet she also is a part of the family ancestry. We come to one other one in verse, verse 6, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Uriah, one of the close friends of, of one of the mighty men of David, who was out on the battlefield fighting for David, uh, a loyal soldier, and while he's gone, David sees his beautiful wife and takes her and sleeps with her. And the most sordid story, perhaps, in the entire Old Testament, particularly in light of who David was, David not only slept with his friend's wife, but actually has his friend killed on the battlefield. Now, you look at all this and you say, God, I don't, why? I mean, why? David had so many wives. I mean, he, why did you have to choose Bathsheba of all women to be the one that's going to be the, 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 the ancestor of Jesus? The question's really important because this first set of verses screams. God is saying, read these names. Think of these stories. And realize that Jesus intentionally is identified with these individuals, prostitutes, murderers, manipulators, liars. He came to be associated with such people. He came to do life with such people. He came for such people. The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ came for people just like that. And you may say, well, I'm not like that. Well, quite honestly, as I've said a million times, the seed of every sin is in every one of our hearts. The idea is that God associated with this and said everybody sits down at the same table of grace. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, how you failed. Jesus says, in my church, those things don't disqualify. Sin cannot halt God's saving grace. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in your life. There is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in your life. It's why in Romans, Paul says it this way, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It overwhelms it. It overwhelms everything you've done. It overwhelms everyone you've hurt. It overwhelms the failures 
Because Jesus, even in his lineage, is portrayed as identifying and associating with such people. Then we come to Christ's birth. The second part of this this passage, and he talks in this account to Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Just want to connect the dots of the story with where we were last Sunday. Last Sunday, we saw the story of Mary who had been told by the angel Gabriel, you're going to be pregnant. She's stunned and it says immediately, well, the the angel then told her a second thing. And your, your relative, Elizabeth, is now six months pregnant. Well, this was not a small thing because this is like her grandmother and, and maybe even older than that. This is a very old woman. And so it says that Mary immediately, that's the term, immediately left where she was in Nazareth to go to the one person who could possibly understand what was taking place in this virgin's body a miraculous conception. She spent three months with Mary, with Elizabeth, until Elizabeth delivered her son, John the Baptist. Then Mary returned to Nazareth, and it is at this time that she tells her betrothed husband, which was uh, meant they had actually entered into as families and as individuals a binding legal covenant to be married, but they had not consummated that marriage. It was usually a year long. And they were in that, that waiting period to consummate their relationship, to live together. Then Mary comes to Joseph and says, um, we need to talk. And that's when we come to our passage here in verse 18 and following. Jesus' birth Joseph is told is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, what did this mean to Joseph? Well, everything I've read is that typically in marriages such as this, which was normal for ancient Israel in the time of Christ as well, the guy would be older than the girl. Usually the guy would be somewhere around 19 or 20 years old. Typically the girl would be somewhere 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. To us, these sound like a couple of kids, right? They didn't have a deep, intimate, romantic relationship at this time. I would guess Joseph knew Mary's Mary's parents better than he knows her. They don't know each other that well. They know of each other. They're in a little town called Nazareth, which the estimates based on archaeological digs and everything else today is there were probably four or 500 people that lived there. I mean, you knew who everybody was. And now Mary lowers the boom. I'm pregnant. We don't know what he told her, what she told him. Maybe she told him about the angel Gabriel. But again... He doesn't know her this well to believe that, I mean, the angel Gabriel hadn't appeared to him. And here's a young girl. And she said, oh, here's what happened. And, and, and here's what God told him. Maybe she told him. Maybe she didn't even tell him. Maybe she didn't even feel she could understand. But we read this, this passage and we put ourselves in Joseph's state. And he responds 
actually with great grace. He will not continue the relationship. He'll break off the betrothal. That's what it means when it says he'll divorce her. But he doesn't do what actually the custom required him to do, which was to publicly take this to the courts and let them know, and they have the option of stoning her for her unfaithfulness or just treating her as a, as a loose woman for the rest of her life. He opts to do the best that he can to protect her and not continue with the relationship, but it says to do it quietly. It's a beautiful decision, but it's not the decision God wants for Joseph. So the angel appears to him and makes this statement, don't be afraid to take her. Now, that's such an interesting word. Don't be afraid. Well, what's he afraid of? I mean, you say, well, if he's such a good man, and, and okay, she, she made a mistake. She messed up, but why not marry the girl? Why is he afraid to do that? I mean, it's not that he's, that, he's, that he's disgusted to do it. It's not that he's angry, and so he's not. He's afraid. What's he afraid of? Well, partly he's afraid of doing the wrong thing of disobeying God. The, the entire sense of the betrothal period of a year was for it to be a time to prove that they actually were still celibate, they were still pure, and right in the middle of the thing, she's pregnant. The other reason I can't imagine he didn't feel afraid is because he thought he knew her. He thought he got her. He knew her family. He knew her character. He knew her reputation. He's a good and godly man. She's a good and godly young woman, young girl. And I'm sure Joseph is going, she's not who I thought she was. You think he wasn't also imagining there's four or 500 people in town? Which guy? Who is it? You think he wasn't thinking that? I mean, how could you not be thinking that? Wait, who did I see her with? Who carried her books to school or parchments or whatever they were? Who was it? He thinks, I, I, I can't enter into this relationship. I'd be scared to death of what I'm getting into. And the angel said, Joseph, don't be afraid. I want you to do something really big. I want you to proceed as if things are normal. And yes, it would be obvious that she conceived out of wedlock. Actually, later, Jesus, one of the things they talk about Jesus is he's a son of, a, of, of an immoral relationship. That's one of the accusations people make. They knew. This town knew. They, you didn't hide stuff in small towns. But don't be afraid. Why? Three reasons. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is why... This message also speaks to us. What it means to everyone is that what has taken place is done supernaturally by God. The second thing that's true is his name highlights what he'll do. He says he'll be called, you are to call him. It says to Joseph, you are to call him Jesus. The word Jesus is the the Aramaic translation of the name Jesus. Joshua. I don't know if you knew that. The name Joshua means Savior. Uh, call him Jesus, because he will deliver his people from their sins. We go back to a minute to the genealogy, right? The one that's coming, this Jesus, 
He's associated with throughout his genealogy with the people that God specifically chose as his ancestral parentage. He's associated with broken people. He's associated with people in need. He's associated with people that have screwed up royally. But he doesn't just associate with them. He doesn't just have a heritage with them. He delivers them. He rescues them from themselves. He comes to intervene in the lives of Rahab's and David's. A spiritual giant, but did a horribly, horrible, godless thing. He comes to the people of our day that have messed up. He comes to you. He comes to me. He comes to be a deliverer. And then it says this other thing in this passage. And in fulfillment of the prophet's statement in verse 23 of Matthew 1 from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you may have the question, wait a minute. It says you're going to call him Jesus, and it says he's going to be called Emmanuel. So what do you call him? Is the name actually Jesus Emmanuel Christ? What, what's the deal? Well, Emmanuel was more a title. That his, his, the understanding of who he is will be that he is Emmanuel. His human name would be Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You'll notice it doesn't say he'll be God over us. That's not the focus. He's not primarily, ultimately, come to take charge, to straighten us out, to get our behavior up to snuff and our moral religiosity in line. The Pharisees thought this would be great. Yeah, we want a God over us because we know we'll be first in line because we've measured up in their own perception. But he's not a God over us in the ways described. He's not a God in front of us. This is a little better that he'd be a God that would lead us, that would direct us. I mean, it sounds better, more helpful, less pushy. But he still feels distant, apart, separated, our leader and director, but... but and he's not the one we often would like him to be. He's not God under us. This would be great. A God that is there, a vending machine God to give us what we want when we want it. A God we can boss around. A God we can control. A God we can, we can, we can look at as of, of incredible power like the, the majestic genie. And, and he's at our beck and call. He's not that either. He's God with us. He's the God that's always associated by his grace with broken people. He's the God that's always willing to enter in where we sense our brokenness. He's the God that is with you in your sorrows. He is the God that is with you in your fears, with people who need someone to be with he is with us when we face the daunting 
and at times dreaded realities and demands of life. He is with us. He is with us in our aloneness. Jesus is the one that has come to say, I am with you. I, God, am with you. Yes, I'm over you, but that's not the focus. Yes, I'm there to be, to be, to be appropriated by you, but that's not the focus. Yes, I'll lead you, but that's not the focus. I'm with you. It's interesting, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who is alongside of. I mean, God just seems to constantly say, I am with you. I've talked about the, the scripture that talks about fearing God and how, God, and, and how God's being awed by God overcomes our fear. The most often repeated statement where God says to us, don't be afraid. This is the next phrase, he says. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I'm here. I'm the God. I'm Emmanuel. I came among you. The triune God sent Jesus Christ to be God with us. Christianity is not about straightening up. He didn't come as the God over us. Christianity is not about following at a distance. He didn't come as the God in front of us. It's not about living out our own self-centeredness. He's not the God under us. Christianity is about not being left on our own, to our own resources, our own devices. Because God is with us. So what does this say to us as we close this morning? What the story says, both the genealogy and the account to Matthew, that Jesus is drawn to broken people. He's drawn to people that know they need forgiveness. They need grace. That's why Micah says, he delights to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Secondly, Jesus came to provide the way to forgiveness. And he came to provide forgiveness himself by living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. He paid the penalty for our sins. He earned a righteous standing in his own righteous living. That Jesus came to bring God to us in our aloneness. And Jesus invites us to know God and enjoy him forever. This is the story of Matthew 1. It's why Matthew opens the book. It sounds boring to genealogies, but when you dive in there, wow. This is an incredible story. It is the story, the Christmas story. It's a story of Christ, God. The God who associates with people of brokenness is with us. I'm going to pray and then we're going to close. It's going to be a song. It's a song Michael Card did years ago. He's going to be singing it to us. It's called Emmanuel. Lord, my prayer this morning is particularly for people in the sound of my voice who feel their brokenness. By your grace, maybe for the first time, they're really coming to understand they are a sinner. That they can't measure up. They can't be good enough. 
God's such a mercy when you show us that. When you show us the insufficiency, the inadequacy of ourselves. Because I don't believe you ever show us our hearts except to show us yours. So, Lord, show grace. Make these individuals know the beauty of Christ coming for people just like them, sinners, broken people that need grace. Lord, I speak to lon- for lonely people this morning, and I bring them to you. The holidays are such a loud time to remind us of how much we need to have God with us. Lord, grace them with the reality of what it means to do life with a God who chooses to call himself Emmanuel. Lord, all the other needs that are represented in this room and online this morning, do what we believe is your best gift to us. Show us yourself. Allow us to drink at the well of grace and a good God who chooses to do life with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.